Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talks. Your in-depth analysis and discussion of current events in the Western Balkans. Hello and welcome to Seriously Balkans, our first episode after the summer break. My name is Florian Bieber. Hi, and I'm Damir Kapicic. So in our episode today, we're kind of looking at Ukraine, um, but much more in terms of the relationship between Ukraine and the Western Balkans when it comes to European enlargement and how both the aggression uh, of Russia against Ukraine has had an impact on enlargement overall and also what lessons can be learned or what is the relationship between the Western Balkans and the Ukrainian new dynamism it's bringing into the enlargement process. Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talks. This time Seriously Balkans comes from Kiev. During a visit to Kiev where uh, I participated in discussions about lessons learned from previous enlargements for Ukraine, I caught up with Maria Mazenceva and Iva Nagorniak, two key protagonists promoting Ukraine's integration into the European Union. Maria, who I talked to first, is a deputy of the Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, and also the deputy head of the committee in the parliament responsible for European integration. She also represents Ukraine in the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe and is elected on the ticket of the Servant of the People, the party of uh, President Zelensky. My second uh, interlocutor who I caught up after my trip to Kiev is Ivan Agorniak, who is the Deputy Director General of the Government Office responsible for coordinating the accession talks for the European Union and who is very busy uh, trying to push for a beginning of talks as soon as possible. So with both of them, I discussed on what lessons can be learned from the Western Balkans and also what synergies exist between Ukraine and the Western Balkans in bringing more dynamism into the process. So let's first turn to Maria. Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC talks. How do you see one can learn some lessons from the Western Balkans? How much do you see this as an example or trying to find your own way for Ukraine to the European Union? Yeah, you know, uh, my my EU integration professional life started 13 years ago. And back then, the Eastern Partnership was introduced, but Western Balkans were already in the focus. So it came a little bit earlier. The whole strategy of the EU neighborhood policy was uh, not that developed back then. So Northern Africa, Western Balkans, Eastern Europe, further than Poland uh, and uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, etc. All this posed a huge, at the same time, opportunities and thrusts. The first positioned uh, lady, Catherine Ashton, uh, had huge challenges as well because it was not widely understood why even the... We should talk about further enlargement. We're already, well, back then it was 27th still, not 28th. UK was still there, but Croatia didn't join yet. So at that moment, uh, we realized that it has to follow every candidate country before even becoming a candidate has to be filling in the very, very simple, at the first sight, simple rules and criteria. But uh, Ukraine's case, I think, is the most unprecedented. And uh, the uh, fact that in our further process of integration, we should rely on each other together with Western Balkans. That's what we feel even when we talk to parliamentarians of different uh, countries, especially of this region. I'm, for instance, very in touch with Albanian colleagues uh, via Council of Europe mechanism. I am very thrilled what they're doing. And it shows that regardless 
how small or big as a country you are, your ambitions can be the same. And here, I think we are ruined in a positive way, for instance, the understanding or the perception that, look, Ukraine is speeding, the process is speeded up for Ukraine just because the war of aggression occurred already for a second time since 2014. We really don't want to be viewed like that uh, because this is very unprofessional. I would want to say as well that if we compare different association agreements of the EU and the third countries, Ukraine's association agreement with the EU is one of the most complex. And we are all talking about the seven points, seven points of the criteria, but we should not forget also of the AA and ACI and all other technicalities. How do you see about, you know, as a, you know, representing Ukrainian mm. citizens in parliament, you know, how do you manage these expectations of, yes. that people expect to join very quickly? Yeah. And probably, I mean, we all know that it doesn't take, it doesn't go overnight. Exactly. Even in the best case scenario, exactly. it will take years. You know, how do you take that less try to do information campaigns we try to have quick deliverables what are they these are programs funded by the eu both western balkans ukraine and other uh, candidate states in moldova as well georgia even though still on the way and these are financial supportive projects these are erasmus plus these are horizon uh, program for those who are very in depth uh, into research education and science these are exchange programs. And I think here youth can play a better role of communication. The students and young specialists, uh, both from Ukraine and Western Balkans, are recruited by European institutions for short-term internships. I was one of these uh, interns back in the days, which gave me a perspective of actually understanding that this is definitely not a piece of cake. EU integration, everything written in the books is not black and white and we are proven right now that the rules that are written are not always followed not saying that um, someone would be exempt from it i think we as ukraine are facing much more difficult experience of integration than some western balkan countries but they feel this pain with us and this support is evident also uh, we received a lot of uh, humanitarian aid um, i'm not from the eu but well from the western balkans and it gives us a feeling that we are not alone. It's not just the, the formalities of the 50 billion package, you know, the 1.5 billion we're receiving monthly because we cost ourselves 7 billion per month to pay all the pensions, salaries, etc. Uh, this is a huge financial burden we have. Why should we not be on the same page? I don't know. I think it's, it's the common approach. If you fulfill something, you go ahead. But Yet again, I want to stress, to explain to the people, to your citizens, to your voters, to your constituency, to your to the population, it means involving this population in the process. So, for instance, we do it via reconstruction. We do some projects where people are involved directly. That would be either internally displaced persons from the occupied territories. They see that the project is funded by the common financial aid of the EU. They see the result. They feel it. So EU integration is already there or agriculture facility which suffered and it, it's been under the mining process. And this business knows that they 
can rely uh, on um, efficient mining, which under some uh, surveys might take 753 years. And here we go with all the demining experiences in the countries that suffered wars. It's not, uh, as you say, overnight process, we just can't deactivate them tomorrow. And this is also a very interesting point of contact because it touches upon many people who suffered from it as an aftermath of war, as a, a struggling point for development. I mean, many people also, the Austrian uh, ambassador has always mentioned yeah. this idea of staged accession, the idea yeah. of kind of getting not full membership, but having these interim steps before mm. that. How is that? Is that something you see as promising for Ukraine as well? Or or do you see this as a, as a potential delay? Western Balkans and us would be against because um, I think we've staged our position many times, all of us as candidate countries. We saw it, uh, it was also mentioned by President Macron one day, and I think he changed his position. It's very positive because France and Germany were viewed always as, as two biggest engines of the EU enlargement process. They were back in the days uh, somehow blocking Eastern Partnership Program, but then everyone agreed. Today, we should not invent extra mechanisms. We have the rules we follow. If we fulfill, we move ahead. We don't fulfill, we make a pause, we amend, we change, and then we follow the, the next uh, procedural step. I think that would be just unfair to drag us into some staged uh, new approach. So let's not invent a new bicycle. So you're saying stick to what we have exactly, and exactly. pursue it. I think we've been uh, on it uh, quite efficiently both Western Balkans and us, yet again, different regions, different geographical position. But for instance, I felt uh, in Albania like I'm home. Uh, I visited once. Mm, I haven't been to Tirana, but I've been to uh, the coast area. It reminded me Crimea, where I used to spend my childhood years. And um, yet again, this is a security issue. The region needs... Um, maybe getting back to 1952 idea of the common army. Uh, replacing NATO, no, but strengthening your own efforts means a lot right now. And I think UK uh, agree, uh, sorry, uh, Poland agrees to that as an outside former member, UK agreed to that. Maybe we should consider that also as a joint initiative with Western Balkans, because it's also a region uh, which needs uh, to be viewed uh, not as a constant threat, of course, but uh, as a possible, uh, you know... Yeah, there's a point. security dimension. Exactly, to to exactly. And it's there. We just can't fly out several uh, countries to Mars and, and, and be safe. That's unfortunately not an option. Uh, therefore, I think in this dimension, we can also cooperate better and more together and show it as a reflection to the EU. I am very much afraid of the new leadership of the EU Commission uh, and EU Parliament. I really hope that the stability will be there, but I already see the drops uh, of instability. The family, political families which are expecting different alignments uh, and representatives, six political families. And believe me, I worked with all of them. I am um, vice president of EPP in the Council of Europe. My political party, President Zelensky party, servant of the people, is in ALDE. So it's, you know, for us, it's an interesting uh, game of play. However, uh, it will be very vital for both Western Balkans and us 
who would be the next commissioner for launchment, who would be the president of the commission, how would the political, six political families view us, uh, would they help us, will we have, and by the way, EPP has a very strong uh, position on the Western Balkans constantly, yeah. we're constantly being asked as EU committee representatives, uh, but how about Western Balkans, and these are German colleagues, Michael Geller, for instance, my good friend from before and um, others who actually insisted on uh, us inserting it uh, as a strong argument when we were lobbying uh, across the EU. So I think I'm taking, it's more like I'm taking a task from you right now and an idea that we have to get back to this uh, peer-to-peer contacts, parliamentary contacts. Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC talks. So in our second conversation, I've talked to Ivan Agorniak. Um, so Ivan shared his thoughts on working actually in the office uh, in charge of negotiations and how his experience uh, has also brought him together with key negotiators of the accession process from the Western Balkans. Seriously, Balkans, the BIPAC talks. You're aware, of course, of how long it's been taking the Western Balkans to, you know, join the European Union. I mean, Montenegro and Serbia have been negotiating for a long time. So, you know, how do you, you know, what, what lessons can you take for the Ukrainian process? How do you think you can, in a certain way, have a faster way into the European Union, considering this experience from the Western Balkans? I think that uh, taking into account their position and progress over the fundamentals and the amount of attention that European Commission and uh, member states are paying to the rule of law and anti-corruption measures. The first and foremost lesson is the fundamentals first. And that Ukraine, in order to be on that pace and dynamics of this uh, European integration that is right now, we have to also to bring a progress on the rule of law and anti-corruption. So this is the first and foremost lesson for us. And the next one is, of course, pay attention to the other member states' interests. I saw that uh, some of the Western Balkans, especially, you know, North Macedonia, changed uh, even its name in order to uh, move forward with European integration. I'm right now talking about, the, especially about the Hungary, as you may know. They are paying a lot of attention to the rights of the Hungarian minority in Ukraine. This is two main lessons. First, the fundamentals first. And second, to have a close communication and understanding of the interests of the other member states. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's these are, you know, I think absolutely correct points. I would agree with you on that. I guess also the challenges, I mean, enthusiasm in Ukraine is great among citizens to join the European Union, but also I think citizens expect um, quick results, right? So there's a high expectation that this process will lead to membership soon. How do you manage these expectations? Because the process will take a while, even if, uh, you know, Ukraine can avoid some of the problems the Western Balkans have been facing. So how do you kind of keep expectations there, but also realistic? Well, of course, during after the start of the full-scale aggression and when Ukraine submitted its uh, application for the EU membership, the support for the Ukraine's membership is very high. It's almost 90% or even during the last polls, it's even, even higher than 90% for Ukraine to joining the EU. But of course, many of the 
our citizens, they are thinking that the EU is about, uh, you know, the economic prosperity and uh, this will come just after Ukraine will join the EU. And uh, a lot of people, they are not paying enough attention into and uh, they don't get information about the, all of the reforms that we have to do in order to fulfill all of the obligations. So in the Ukrainian government, we are in the very constant communication with the European Union mission in Ukraine and a delegation in Ukraine. And um, together we are trying to communicate that this process couldn't go so fast. And this some of the measures, they are medium and long term. And uh, we have to plan our, of course, our budget in order to be able to implement some directives, regulations and the accession negotiations. They are very, I would say, up to the point. And, uh, you know, this 35 chapters, six clusters and all of this, uh, this cannot be done overnight, of course. And uh, we are trying to send this message to, to our citizens. Another point that uh, I see that the Ukrainian public is also paying attention to is uh, what will European Union will face uh, together with succession of the Ukraine. So they are paying attention to the our different articles and different ideas that uh, about the changing inside of Ukraine, inside of the European Union, the qualified majority voting things and so on. And I am receiving a lot of questions on that regard. Yes, this is exactly uh, what I wanted to ask you because um, there are many ideas of how to make the process um, more functional of enlargement. I mean, in the Western Balkans, there's a strong sense that the process is not really giving results. So I'm just wondering, you know, of all the ideas which have been floating around, you've mentioned qualified majority voting for the accession process, this uh, Franco-German proposal, which suggests reducing the veto rights. But also there's the other ideas of the so-called staged accession. Uh, you might be familiar with the idea of not joining in one, but having, you know, uh, more structural funds uh, earlier, but then when joining, not having all the privileges of membership and then getting those later. So having multiple steps towards joining. Which of those ideas are, is in a certain way, in your view, would be the most fruitful for bringing the Ukraine, bringing Ukraine into the European Union? So I will talk about my personal views because there is no till this moment uh, official governmental position on that regard. So my personal view here is that any idea that will bring Ukraine closer to the EU membership and to all of the benefits that European Union is giving to EU members is acceptable. But of course, we would like to for this process to be dynamic. So... For example, like the accession negotiations and implementation of the EU directives and regulations, this is not about, you know, uh, only about the final aim on uh, joining to the EU, but it is also about the changes inside Ukraine. So I would like for EU to concentrate maybe the access to the structural funds or maybe to some privileges with understanding of what kind of differences it will make inside of Ukrainian society. For example, like I just um, 
talked with my colleagues from Western Balkans about the problems of implementation of all of the environmental directives and regulations. For example, like water directive and everything. But uh, with implementation of those key, we are changing the real situation and the real maybe way of life of Ukrainians. So uh, we have to pay attention a little bit more to that flip of the coin. And I think that it's probably one of the positive things is in the European integration, uh, that it's uh, constantly changing the way of life into more economic, prosper and with more rights. So uh, I think that we will probably uh, work more on that uh, communication. Uh, but uh, as you may know, this kind of uh, changes, this implementation of the EU key will demand a lot of funds. So together with colleagues from the Digineer, we are right now are concentrating the efforts for this recently announced uh, Ukraine facility uh, fund would be more concentrated on support for Ukraine to implement those uh, EU regulations that could bring uh, good changes for Ukrainian society during the accession negotiations. Yeah. And you mentioned also your exchange with the partners in the Western Balkans. I mean, I guess my, my question would be, how do you see that relationship between Ukraine, which uh, is joining the club uh, together with Moldova or candidate countries with the countries in the Western Balkans? Do you see yourself as in a certain way part of a joint club um, or how do you see the, the benefits and the relations for Ukraine in this process with the countries in the Western Balkans? I think that uh, they have very good experience. They have some good experience and some lessons to be learned for Ukraine. I think that uh, we will probably exchange, uh, uh, you know, we, we will ask them for support and maybe exchange of their experience with all of the screening, how that is works, uh, uh, how the accession negotiation works and so on. So, uh, you know, the practical side of this process. But of course, I felt that uh, during this workshop in Lithuania, in Vilnius, that we are, of course, in the same process, but the EU is still, you know, the European Union is already on the negotiations with Western Balkans and they know their strengths and weaknesses in this process. Uh, but they are still discovering Ukraine in this process. So I could compare our progress maybe after the start of the negotiations or even after the end of the official screening. So. On the political point of view, I really felt that Ukraine brought the new chapter of the enlargement policy. I really felt that we brought more energy, more dynamic. I think that this kind of seminar two years ago without Ukraine was a little bit more boring exercise. But right now it's more about politics. It's more about, of course, about the accession negotiations and implementation of a key, but it's getting more dynamic. And uh, Ukraine brought that window of opportunity to the process, I think. Yeah, I think that's a very correct observation. And I think, uh, Ivan, that I hope, Jen, you know, sincerely that the enthusiasm and the kind of uh, energy of Ukraine for enlargement is something which will have a beneficial and a positive effect on the Western Balkans and not the other way around in terms of, the, I think, the, the lack of enthusiasm we're seeing sometimes at the Western Balkans in keeping the process going. And that's not going to color off on the Ukraine, but the other way around. Yeah, I talked with the chief negotiators from, for example, Albania and uh, North Macedonia. 
they are right now more excited than a few years ago. It's a big difference, big shift. They are ready to do the homework in order to proceed. And uh, they are, you know, like uh, already almost graduates. And we are on the starting point uh, on the first or, or second grade. And they are like uh, sharing with us uh, what kind of uh, teachers are right, <laughs> what are the other teachers, and, uh, uh, you know, this uh, good subjects and bad subjects. <laughs> I really like that during those seminars. And I think that the good way to look on this is a collaboration. It's not about some clash or something like that. Uh, the good way is to look on that as the collaboration because this will bring a result to all of us. I don't believe that uh, Ukraine will join EU earlier than uh, some front runners in the Western Balkans. I think that uh, this uh, window that uh, Charles Michel uh, announced in, during his speech uh, about the 2030, this is one of the the points that we have to look on and uh, maybe some internal deadlines that we have to talk about. Indeed, great. Ivan, good luck with that, and thank you so much for, for talking. So talking to Ivan and talking to Maria highlighted to me really how much there is quite a different perspective in Ukraine when it comes to enlargement than in the Western Balkans. There's a lot more optimism, but there's also, as Ivan talked about, the, you know, the importance of the enlargement process being the light at the end of the tunnel. So it has a very important function uh, at the time of aggression which Ukraine is facing. Of course, a very different context for the Western Balkans and whether or not that experience can help transform the process overall remains to be seen. But certainly, as both have highlighted, there is great opportunity in bringing Ukraine and the Western Balkans closer together. Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC Talks. Hello and welcome to the second part of our podcast, Today, we will be talking with two guests, with Jelena Jankic and Veronika Angel. Jelena is a part-time professor at the Robert Schumann Center of the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. She is director of the GGP. And also with us is Veronika Angel. She is a lecturer at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Today, we will be discussing an edited book with the title A Year Later, War in Ukraine and the Western Balkan Geopolitics. This book was edited by Jelena Jankic, Simonida Kaczarska and Soren Kyle. It was published by the European University Institute in 2023. The book has a total of 24 chapters, five of them which were written by BIAPAG members. The book is published in open access and the link will be in the description of the podcast. Now, Yelena, as one of the editors, you came up with the rationale for the book. Um, essentially, you ask how changing geopolitics following the Russian invasion of Ukraine impacted the Western Balkans one year after the invasion started. Can you walk us through what motivated this book and what has changed in the months since, if anything? Thank you for the opportunity to actually talk about the book and the rationale for bringing together all the contributors, including the BIEPAG members. Now, we often hear in the media, but also in policy circles, that the world has changed on February 24th, 2020. Now, we could see in the year following the Russian aggression, quite a lot of developments in the Western Balkans 
uh, that have been sparked by the new geopolitical shifts. And we could see a lot of uh, developments, both in political and in economic terms. So these developments included shifts in the domestic politics, fractures on the regional level, and some changes in the EU's approach towards the region. Now, in the book, uh, we wanted to explore these different dimensions of change within a year from the start of the war. And we realized that the best way to do this is to co-create a volume engaging 25 influential scholars and policymakers from the Western Balkans, from the EU, but also from across the Atlantic. As to your question uh, on what has changed since, uh, so first, we see a perpetuating instability in the region, and in a lot of cases, we see heightened tensions. And two, at the EU level, we see a lot of discussion about the need to use enlargement as a geopolitical tool. But at the same time, we see hesitance to put this into practice. And I hope that we'll be able to perhaps address some of these issues in a follow-up volume. Now, obviously, the EU and enlargement feature prominently as a geopolitical strategy throughout several chapters. Uh, Veronica, you wrote the lead chapter that casts a huge question mark on whether the current EU enlargement approach actually works or whether it can work in the future. And this being regardless of the new geopolitical circumstances after the Russian invasion. Can you walk us through your line of arguments in that chapter? So in this chapter, which I co-authored with Eric Jones, our colleague at the Robert Schuman Center, uh, the European University Institute, we really try to emphasize that the credibility of EU membership for Ukraine, Moldova, and the countries of the Western Balkans hinges on member states' flexibility uh, regarding entry criteria and even more flexibility regarding the meaning of membership. So here's what we mean. In its past, the European Union has faced similar situations uh, where it had to very reluctantly, which we forget, but very reluctantly consider enlargement. Uh, and it was usually prompted by external pressures, right? So enlargement has historically mostly been a reaction to events. Um, and those were mostly security-related events, whether it was Central and Eastern Europe, um, in the early 2000s, we can talk about that later on, or the awkward situation that uh, was developing between Cyprus and Turkey that is still an ongoing issue. So as the security imperative uh, for the European Union enlargement increases, we argue that the requirements for entry tend to fall. So yet again, the European Union uh, finds itself in a predictable situation in a way uh, to which it reacts in, in similar ways, in ways that it has reacted before, transforming the enlargement process into a stabilization tool for, for its own security. It doesn't actually want enlargement, but it doesn't know in a way what other tool to use to secure itself. And um, this is a search that we're, we're witnessing a search right now for the best solution um, and this search is, is obvious when you review some of the documents that the EU has been producing in the last years before the full-scale invasion and since. So the EU has acknowledged, as the specialists on the Western Balkans would know, that it has acknowledged its credibility uh, problem in several of its documents. And uh, from its 2011 enlargement strategy towards the Western Balkans to its 2020 
so-called new enlargement methodology to the latest EU Western Balkans summit that took place in Tirana in, in 2022. So in this 2018 document, the EU acknowledged, and, and I quote you know, from from the chapter, in the 2018 document, EU enlargement is described as, and I'm quoting, an investment in the EU's security, economic growth and influence and its ability to protect its citizens. So security needs drive the EU to become a geopolitical actor. Then such documents show that having the Western Balkans in would strengthen the EU's security. But not EU documents share the same vision. And this is the uh, uncertainty and the search that I was uh, talking about earlier. Because if you look at the EU's strategic compass for security and defense, the Western Balkans are defined as outside partner, right, with whom some sort of tailored-made partnerships uh, have to be created alongside Eastern and Southern uh, neighborhood, like in Africa, Asia, and, and Latin America. So it's a very complicated situation for the European Union in which it has to define for itself what it wants to do with the candidate states. And that's why we end up asking if the EU can simultaneously build a security strategy around having countries from the Western Balkans and Ukraine and Moldova in and having them out at the same time. Now, we see that security is a major concern. And Yelena, we don't see a quick end to the Ukraine war at the same time. What would you say to policymakers who argue that the EU should heavily prioritize geopolitical concerns at the moment and even use an enlargement tool to achieve this? Well, I'd say that there needs to be a balanced approach. We know that the EU has deployed the promise of membership as a geopolitical tool. And in so doing, it has essentially created expectations in the Eastern Partnership countries and above all in Ukraine and Moldova of future membership. But also it raised the hopes of the Western Balkan countries that they will accede to the European Union in a slightly shorter time frame that was uh, originally uh, expected. And how to manage those expectations that have been created and to deploy a credible strategy towards candidates and potential candidates will be one of the key political questions in the coming years. So I think that geopolitical enlargement is one thing, but the promise of membership that has been deployed in this context is a completely different issue. And one does not imply the other. Given all of these recent repeated mentions of reviving the enlargement process, Veronica, do you think that it still holds true that Western Balkans do not rank highly on the EU's agenda? Or just to ask you more directly, is the EU suddenly afraid it will lose the Western Balkans? I believe that the enlargement to the Western Balkans certainly doesn't appear to be a priority for Europeans. I'm speaking in earnest. In Ukraine is definitely the EU's and NATO's priority here. And, and it's due to its size, its geographic position, the geopolitical importance, and, and Russia's obvious determination to completely erase this country from the map. And not least, because the United States is involved in this process and it supports a Ukraine-dominated agenda as well. So sadly, the Western Balkans are mostly collaterally brought into the principal conversation, which is focusing on Ukraine. If there will be any flexibility shown towards enlargement for a country in the Western Balkans, 
then it will likely be the outcome of a strategy of some sort to show to the people of Ukraine and Moldova that there is some space for enlargement, that enlargement is still credible. But to do that, the EU has to find a way to do that at minimal cost. And the current architecture of voting and of including the countries in of, as full members wouldn't allow that. Thank you very much. Now, in the first segment of the podcast, Florian spoke to Ukrainian leaders who emphasized the need for closer cooperation between their country and the Western Balkans. Asking both of you, is there anything the Western Balkans can teach Ukraine about the enlargement process? And also the other way around, what can Ukraine teach the Western Balkans? Yelena, maybe you first. Now, regretfully, in, in many ways, the Western Balkans can teach Ukraine what not to do. So the region offers a series of important lessons uh, on what happens in divided societies, post-war zones, contested and captured states, sites of democratic decline, but also sites where foreign and malign influences can dominate domestic conflicts. So trying to avoid the Western Balkan scenarios in these domains is the most important lesson that the region can offer. And what Ukraine can teach the Western Balkans is above all resilience and be how to use the momentum. So I think that these would be the key lessons on both sides. Veronica? That chapter that we mentioned at the beginning uh, in the book edited by Yana and, and her colleagues, we draw lessons from the European Union's enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe since 2004. Um, and also to the Western Balkans, so successful and and stalled enlargement uh, processes as well. So, and this is something that can really instruct the way we can look at this process going forward. Because if we look at the case of Central and Eastern Europe, this shift from having strict Copenhagen-style criteria to broadening the, the candidate pool stemmed from concerns about potential conflicts um, akin to those in the former Yugoslavia, and other signs of de-democratization, anti-European sentiment that were already starting to emerge in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, not like in Slovakia or Hungary, not to mention Romania and Bulgaria. So this idea of a flexible accession that we're trying to put forward, and as parenthesis, it's also something that a lot of people from the EU right now are investing time and money in explaining to everyone um, that it, it should be the, the best way to move forward. So to, to rethink what membership means, to rethink what enlargement means. This is something that we've been trying to, to say that it's, it's useful in these conversations going forward. Uh, so in, in this sense, Ukraine has to be flexible regarding its participation in the EU, but it also has to ask for everything. So for as much as the EU can give, because the EU will never give as much as Ukraine needs, and that's important to note. And uh, Ukraine has to make itself indispensable to the European security architecture and uh, its economy, its labor market. And uh, there are ways to do this and ways to learn from the successful enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe and all the ways in which these countries have connected to the European Union before they became full members. Now, shifting back to a Western Balkans view, all of this talk of in 
re-engaging with enlargement, of trying to jumpstart enlargement. Yelena, how has this increased European interest been perceived in Western Balkan countries? Um, is there any interest? And can you maybe give an example? Yeah, I think that the increased interest falls largely in the domain of perceptions. And if we think about it, there, there are differences across countries. So we can see perhaps an increased enthusiasm in Bosnia and Herzegovina and Albania, obviously due to candidacy for Bosnia and Herzegovina, but also in Albania due to an enhanced perhaps momentum even for enlargement, the EU Western Balkan Summit of 2022 that took place in Tirana. So Perhaps in these countries, the renewed interest of the EU is more visible and palpable, and thus something that drives some political processes. Now, in North Macedonia, the opening of accession negotiations came with a bitter pill. So I would say that in this country, there is a bit less enthusiasm over the EU's renewed interest, I would say. Kosovo, Montenegro, and Serbia, on the other hand, well, they seem to be caught up in their own inward-looking moment. So I don't see that the uh, interest of the EU in the region can actually reach the societies of uh, Kosovo, Montenegro, and Serbia at this moment. So, um, Veronica, now back to you. Based on your research and expertise, and there has been a lot of this talk about a fixed deadline for a session. 2030 has been mentioned quite often recently. Is this something that could motivate candidate countries to reform, even though they might not be willing to? Well, also listening to what Yelena just had to say, then I'm even more confident in my answer to, to rather say that uh, all countries need to reform to their own benefit, uh, regardless of the EU. And that's, that's important to mention, and it's not just small talk. But if you we talk about a deadline that is fixed, for 2030, I do not think that is realistic in, in any way. Uh, it, it's a bet that I am I am willing and happy to lose and I participate in losing, but uh, it's very unlikely. What we can expect is that uh, the EU leaders will decide to open accession talks uh, with Kyiv by the end of this year and that if not followed by some sort of equal offering towards the Western Balkans as well, will only overall increase the absence of the credibility of the uh, EU enlargement process. And maybe a follow-up question to that. Uh, how can a 27-member European Union even approach enlargement today? It will be different in this round. And, and can there be a credible commitment if there are no changes to EU rules or EU documents? I think that the EU cannot make a credible commitment to the government to the governments of candidate countries uh, because of the veto scare. This is a really it's a real conversation that is taking place, and current, Hungary is currently considered more than enough to deal with in the Council. And as long as the governments of these countries are not pristine in their democracy and rule of law and anti-corruption credential, and there is no more worry of reversibility when it comes to rule of law, which is an impossible target to reach right now. So as long as that doesn't happen, they will not be admitted as equal uh, partners around the table with veto rights. So the commitment that is credible is a commitment towards the citizens of these countries 
to connect them as much as possible to everything that the European Union has to offer and it is appealing and, and desirable for, which is accessibility to the labor market, to academia, to international trade schemes, to security, the little security that the European Union can offer. All these things are commitments to their citizens, but commitments to the governments is not that credible, I think. This is a very important discussion to have. And I thank both of you for taking your time to join us in this conversation. Um, Jelena Jankic, thank you very much. Veronica Angel, thank you very much. I once again want to emphasize that the book, A Year Later, War in Ukraine and the Western Balkan, Geopolitics, is available open access at the link in the description. Thank you. Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC Talks. So, Damir, you've heard what I've, you know, brought back from Kiev and the conversations. You know, what strikes you the most in the two, you know, kind of, you know, Ukrainian colleagues uh, I've, I've talked to? Well, there are two things that strike me most. One is this optimism that you could hear from both their conversations and voices that they see a session and enlargement as something that actually benefits Ukraine and that they're really willing to go forward with. The second thing is that and they see the relationship in a session with the Western Balkans as a collaboration, not so much as a competition. They emphasize this several times that there are things that they can learn from the Western Balkans and that they can maybe also sort of bring into that relationship as well. Yeah, indeed. I think I was this was really striking. I mean, the kind of sense of optimism, the sense of purpose, and also how they they did really didn't see this as you know we want to come first in line. Um, you know, we are we are respecting that the Western Balkans have been at this for a while. So I think this is actually quite encouraging in many ways. When you know the sort of how enriching it can be. Yes, definitely. So, Florian, what did you take away from my conversation with Yelena and Veronica? Yeah, I mean, I think. There, which was striking, is of course how much there has been, you know, so little of a Zeitenwende in the Western Balkans. I mean, this is really quite the contrast to the first part, where you you actually don't see a major shift in the way in which enlargement is discussed in the Western Balkans, and that kind of comes out in the conversation. But also in the way the EU talks to the Western Balkans, so it seems still like very two separate conversations going on. One, um, you know, about and with Ukraine um, and from the Ukraine to the EU side and one of the Western Balkans, which seems strangely unaffected by the war and where, you know, the shifts have been much more minute and much smaller than, you know, one could have expected if we had this conversation back in, you know, February or March of last year. Yes, I agree with this. There have been some elements that have shifted, but then others where it's basically still business as usual, you could say, as the same as in the past 10 to 15 years. Indeed. So I think maybe the kind of key takeaway from our podcast this week is that it's really kind of helpful to you know, bring Ukraine into the equation to think about enlargement. I mean, of course, there's also Moldova and, you know, to some degree also Georgia in the background. But it really, I think, helps to rethink an enlargement and also to revitalize it. And I think a bit of that kind of contagious optimism can be really helpful in the Western Balkans. So, you know, I would say my takeaway is I hope that the Western Balkan accession process will take on some of the optimism from the Ukraine and Ukraine, not so much of the cynicism which the enlargement process has taken on in the Western Balkans. Exactly. Well, maybe some of the caution some of the caution, some of the, you know, some of the realism certainly would be useful. And um, and I think both of, of our interlocutors in Ukraine are aware that this is not a short-term game, but something which requires a bit of a stamina and time. 
But um, again, interesting times ahead in terms of also the enlargement strategy packages coming out in the coming months from the European Union. And it's going to be interesting to see how um, they will integrate the Ukraine with the Western Balkan enlargements. So much more to talk about in future podcasts. So thanks for joining us. Tune in and follow us on all of our channels where we are available. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Seriously Balkans, the BIPAC Talks. This podcast is produced by the Balkans in Europe Policy Advisory Group, a joint project of the European Fund for the Balkans and the Center for Southeast European Studies of the University of Graz. Find out more about our research, analysis and advocacy at www.biapag.eu.